Last week, we talked about the proof being in the harvest, and, and James started out with the question, who is wise and understanding among you? And he proceeded to make the point that wisdom can be and should be observed behaviorally, and thus the, uh, it's offering us obvious evidence as to whether or not one's wisdom is either worldly wisdom or heavenly wisdom. Evidence of earthly or unspiritual or demonic wisdom, as he called it, is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and, and, it, and it reaps a harvest of disorder and every vile practice. But fortunately, James gives us the contrast of what heavenly wisdom is like, where it's from. It's from above. It's from God, obviously. And the results or the evidence is good behavior and gentle deeds. And he, he's, he writes, but wisdom from above is pure, it's peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. And it reaps a harvest. The harvest of the heavenly wise is that there would be a, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. Today we will see that church conflicts have their sources in misplaced passions and desires of the people. We're going to see relational conflicts in the church. We're going to see reasons for the conflicts. We're going to see a very strong reprimand from James about it. And then the responses of repentance. I've entitled today's message, Define the Relationship. There comes a point in a relationship when it needs defining. When I was in, in college at Trinity Western University, I was spending a lot of time with a lovely girl. We were going on walks in the evening, going for drives, going out to dinners. This was all as friends. But I decided it was time after about three or four months of this to take the relationship to a new level. I spent a lot on our date that night. Couldn't afford it, but that's beside the point. And decided I would start a discussion as to where the, our relationship was headed. To my surprise, it was not at all what I expected in her reply. She uh, ended the relationship that night. Perhaps you're asking the question that I was in that moment, which is why. And next Sunday, you can ask her after a service. She'll be sitting up here with my kids. You can ask her for the, for the details. Look with me now at James chapter 1, starting in, or chapter 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and a judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to pause and to give you praise and adoration because you are worthy of it. And we're thankful if we know you and understand the grace that came through Christ. We, we've witnessed how good you are. And so, God, we, we would just ask that you would receive our praises. And, Father, as we, we've watched these testimonies of those who were baptized earlier, we just give you thanks and praise for what you did in their lives, for the way you showed yourself evident in them. Lord, we just ask your blessing upon them, and we would ask you to watch over them and to guide them and to care for them. Father, as we dig into this tough passage, would you just guide us? And Father, we ask you to be with the East Campus today as, as they're looking at it too, and we ask you to be exalted there. We pray for the students that will be going off to camp this week. We ask that you would work in a mighty way in their hearts and lives. Now, God, we give you this time. We ask you to use it and to be exalted in our midst. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Notice that James employs another key question. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Uh, a case can be made that, that James is using a similar style question here to connect this passage to last week's passage that started in, in 3.13, because there it was that other question, right? And, and I share with you a couple of theories about that last week, if you remember. But frankly, the more I've studied this book and the more time I've spent in it even this week, I began to wonder if seeking to find these distinctive breaks in James in, in his thoughts might actually be a bad idea. I understand we've got to put it into manageable chunks for these Sundays, right? But I believe that while he's addressing various subjects, he, he may not have intended for it to be segmented much. If we take a holistic look at this book, we can see perhaps that it's coming to a crescendo right in these verses here. And I'll leave that to your further consideration if you so choose. He opens with the question, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Only to follow it with a, another rhetorical question, is it not that your passions are at war within you? So first we see we've got relational conflict in the church. The introduction of, of fights and quarrels serves as a contrast, I believe, with last week's message that ended with peacemakers who are reaping a harvest of righteousness. They see the contrast there. So I, I think it's a continuation here. And, and it's definitely shift, shifting from that positive, peaceful behavior of the heavenly wise to the fights and quarrels of the unwise. And it's happening in the church. These are very strong words, quarrels and fights. You and I know what it can be like to watch people quarrel and fight and how ridiculous it can be. And perhaps you grew up in a home or are in a home where there's constant quarreling. And maybe these are over major things, or, or maybe they're just minor, silly things, but there's constant fighting. Families that in, in war with one another. 
Uh, other scenarios, se- several years ago, I was at a, a, my son's basketball game, and they were both in like fifth and sixth grade, and uh, my older sons, and we were watching this game, and at the end of the game, one of the coaches came right at the ref, and they, start, they were nose-to-nose, and they were starting to yell at each other and swear at each other. It was ridiculous. This game was a blowout. It wasn't even close, and this one coach is upset about a call, and so I moved my big self in between them, and they're trying to talk around me, and yell, you know, it was ridiculous. We've seen these kinds of things, right? Road rage. Somebody pulls in front of somebody and now they're going to be 2.6 seconds later to their destination than they were before. And they're furious. Or more serious things like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Remember, James is still addressing believers here and these quarrels and fights are among the church. Note the intensity. Look at verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. James puts murder in this list. And we can only speculate as to why. Uh, One of the options is this, that it actually had happened amongst them. It got that bad. Another option is that James wants them to know that their conflicts have moved towards violence, murderous intent. Realize that this was written in a time of religious zealots. People who would do anything, including kill, to defend their religion. Another option is that James is applying the teaching of Jesus here that we find in Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. We don't know exactly what the scenario was. We can't be certain. But the word that, that is translated fights shows up 17 times in the New Testament, and it always speaks of physical fights or combat. This is certainly a level of conflict that, it, that is intense and it's not happening in the absence of harsh words or criticism or slander that, that James addresses. These were obviously present in their midst. Quarrels, fights, even murder are outward symptoms or manifestations of an inward problem. And here we find the reason for the conflict. The problem, he says, your passions or desires are at war within you and you covet. Now, a reasonable question here is, is what, what does he mean by within you? Is he speaking to an individual or to, to specific individuals saying the problem is in you? Or is he saying it's within you as a body of believers? And I would say that context will clarify that it's both. There's warring passions, and James will take this further as it pertains to individuals, but but first there's fighting and quarreling that clearly indicates interpersonal issues over personal passions and desires. And fights ensue in the church. Even today, churches can have major conflicts over the littlest of things. Do you know that if a wall gets painted in a church, somebody is liable to get upset 
Some years ago, when I was leading my last church through a building campaign, we were building a new worship center, and about five weeks before we moved into it, I started to say every Sunday from the pulpit, I said, listen, some of you are going to walk into the new sanctuary, and you're going to look at the color of the walls, and you're going to go, ew. Or others of you are going to walk in and go, I love that. And some are going to walk in, and they're going to look at the carpet and go, oh, that's impractical. Or it's ugly. I said, guess what? There's hundreds of us. And if you look around, we're all going to have different opinions. But we are not going to move into a new worship center and fight over the color or the style of the carpet. I kept driving it because churches can split over foolish things like that. Or, Or even things like where food and beverages can and cannot be taken in a church. Heaven forbid that the 37-year-old Jones Memorial carpet gets a stain on it. We've got to save it till the Lord comes. That's good carpet. <laughs> Youth activities, that's all I've got to say. That causes conflict. I won't say any more. <laughs> Curriculum that's chosen. Uh, the pastor dresses too casual or too formal or somebody wore a hat on stage. <gasps> No. A few members of a church not far from here have been in conflict recently over a church logo. But sometimes it's more serious forms of dispute. Worship wars. That was big in the late 90s, but it still exists. The style of music, the volume. Which instruments are acceptable on stage and which aren't? The role of women in the church. Racial concerns. Cultural shifts, even within a denomination. I have a conversation going with a church in Illinois that's an area that I still superintend. And that church is Methodist and and they're wanting to back away from where their denomination is going. And they're talking about jumping into the evangelical free church. So they're asking all kinds of questions. Can divide a church. Bible doctrine issues and more. Understand some matters are worth contending for, but James is clearly upset with what this New Testament church is doing, this young church. The Greek word hedone, translated into desires and passions, is a word from which we get hedonism, the self-indulgent pleasure-seeking, which is honestly never far away from jealousy and selfish ambition, it would seem. And it often leads to covetousness, which is the feeling of having intense desire for what other people have. This includes, but is not limited to, material possessions and finances. It actually often shows up in covetousness of relationships, of achievements. Even highly successful people can be found coveting the achievements of their peers. This coveting and not getting leads to battle. So battles ensue. And and note what James says in the second part of chapter 2. And some of you are looking that I'm still in verse 2 and looking at the time. Don't worry, I'll get you out by 5. No, it'll be quick. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. This would be incredible confusing for us if it were not for verse 3. Look at verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Without verse 3 here, we might be thinking that that James is proclaiming a health and wealth gospel here. You have all these desires, so you covet. 
you should ask God for everything you desire. But verse 3 brings that very important clarification. James is, saying, James is saying, you have great want, this basic covetousness, and maybe their wants were for control in the church. Maybe they wanted to be leaders. Maybe they wanted to be people of influence or they wanted to be honored or maybe they wanted financial control. It's hard to say. But these things are, are the reason they're struggling and it's because they don't ask God, he says. But we've got to say, okay, what is James implying here? I think we have a clue from the promise that Jesus made to his disciples. We find it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, a familiar text. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You have a heavenly Father who gives good gifts, not bad gifts. And James had already echoed that. Remember in chapter 1, verse 17, it, he, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He's an unchanging Heavenly Father who gives good and perfect gifts. So ask Him. But then He goes on, when you ask, you're asking with the wrong mindset and the wrong motives. He says, you're asking to spend it on your passions. Here's that selfish ambition again. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. I mean, that father who generously gave his inheritance to his son. And the son certainly wanted to spend it on himself, didn't he? He operated with bad motives. Maybe the psalmist can give us some more clarity on this. The psalmist uh, in, in Psalm 37, verse 4 Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. What a wonderful thought. The Lord will give you the desires of your heart. Yet it would seem that there is a bit of a contingency of sorts here, right? If she wants to receive the desires of her heart, she must first delight herself in the Lord. If he wants the desires of his heart, he must be fully given over to God. Which in, in turn brings about a purification of these desires and wants. God then sanctifies those desires. That means that she or he will desire God's will and God's way means there's been a change to the desires of the heart. James gives us a call to humbly love and pursue God. And this is where James becomes most intense here. He hits hard. And he's going to give a strong reprimand we see here in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously 
over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. You adulterous people. That's a heavy, heavy hit, right? We understand that from the Old Testament, right? The Israelites were always called adulterous because they would chase after other gods and worship idols. Remember the prophet Hosea, his unique assignment? God instructs him to marry a wife of whoredom. And then they have children together, and they're to be named Jezreel. And the second one's to be, to be named No Mercy. And the third one, Not My People. Anybody with child and, and want to name your child No Mercy? Is that in the books? If you look through, get to the ends. God uses Hosea's strained, painful, adulterous relationship to communicate what it was like to be the God of Israel, the God of, of Jacob, the, the God of Ephraim, who had not been faithful to the Sinai covenant. Yet while Israel was unfaithful, God remained faithful. And God instructs Hosea then to redeem his unfaithful wife as a picture of his own heart for his people. So understand here, as James uses adulteress when he describes them, he sees the behavior of this New Testament church and likens their behavior to the unfaithful people of Israel. And he's essentially saying to them, listen, you claim to love Jesus, but your real affections are for yourself. Your real affections are for the world. And he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Oxford defines it, enmity as the state of feeling or being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. Some of your Bible translations read hatred, didn't they? Friendship with the world is hatred to God. That's why James continues on to say, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Can you just imagine for a minute, if you are a Christian, you love Jesus, imagine somebody coming to you or a conviction coming to you that says, listen, you claim to be a Christian, but everything about how you live and how you act says that you are actually an enemy of God. Would that hit a little hard? Would that loosen a few teeth? To be told you're living as an enemy of God. So what's really being said with this friendship here? And, and uh, Commentator Doug Moo points out that we t you and I, we tend to speak about friendship casually. And maybe that's because we have things like Facebook that tells us we have hundreds of friends. But in that Hellenistic culture, friendship involved the sharing of all things in a unity of both spiritual and physical relationship. This is deep. He's talking about something very deep here. Note the similar admonition we receive from John in his first epistle in chapter 2, verse 15. He writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. I think John defines here what friendship with the world is. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And for James' original audience here, we might speculate that friendship with the world, 
of which he speaks in a general reference, is really addressing all the things that he's, he's covered in his letter. He's saying all those things are, are signs of friendship with the world, including covetousness, selfish ambition, and pride. Clearly, pride is an issue here. It keeps coming up. Remember, it was Jesus who said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon or God and money because you'll either hate one and love the other or vice versa. We cannot have anything more important to us than the Lord. And maybe this is a good point for me to slow down and give us a moment to do some soul searching. Is there anything that rivals God's first place in your life? When push comes to shove and you decide what's really important, is there anything that rivals God for that first spot? Maybe another way to ask would be to consider what we would struggle to give up if God were to ask us. Is there an ungodly relationship that he would ask us to give up and we would struggle to do that because that's more important to us? Or is it some of our stuff? Or is it, is it our status? That when push comes to shove, we really, uh, it, honestly, if, it, if we had to prioritize them based upon how we feel and how we live, they actually get a higher spot than God. It's a convicting thought. Verse 5 here, uh, it, it's known as one of the most difficult verses to translate from the original Greek, and it has to do with punctuation and what spirit's being talked about and some other things. And again, Doug Moo does a good job of just highlighting the two prevalent interpretations. One is, one option is that James is referring to God's jealousy for his people. He jealously longs for the spirit he made to dwell in us. Another translation really is saying that James is referring to a human tendency to be envious. The spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely. You'd find that in the Christian Standard Bible or in the older NIV and a few others. The context really could allow for both, but seems to lean in favor of God's jealousy for his people, and it certainly aligns with what we've seen in the Old Testament. But I want to just stop here for a minute and just say this. I am so grateful that God is jealous for my heart. I'm, God, I'm grateful that, that he is jealous for my attention, for my affections, and for my worship. Do you realize how significant that is? That we have a God who is jealous for us? As Charmaine and I were on a break, we discovered that we jealously longed for each other for the heart of the other. That's why we're together today. God longs for the heart of you. Isn't that beautiful? Jealously. We gotta keep going. James uses scripture says here. And it creates a little confusion because you try to find those exact wordings in, in the Old Testament and you can't find them quite as easily as you might hope. There's certainly some general thoughts he's covering. Uh, and then we see things like God opposes the proud, give grace to the humble. We can see that in, in the third chapter of Proverbs. And it certainly aligns with the teaching of Jesus. 
And James has, has gone through here, and, and in this reprimand, he said, listen, you adulterous people. But then also, what does he do? He declares that God gives more grace. Folks, that is good news. You and I need a God who gives more grace. We need that grace again and again, don't we? We struggle, we get distracted, we fall back in love with the world, and we need that grace. It's good news. So in light of all this, in light of their condition, James then gives some responses of repentance, and they come rapid fire at us here. And he's really saying, based upon your status as adulterous people who love the world more than him, do these. Look with me at verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinner, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is a, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In the context of this admonition to be humble, there's an admonition then to submit, to surrender to the authority. I appreciated Amy's testimony, this idea of 75% and holding back that 25%. That's that idea of we're not submitting to God. We're, we're kind of liking the idea of God, but not completely. Submit. Resist the devil and he will flee. There's an effort, but there's some good news there, right? Think of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Three different temptations. The enemy keeps trying. He even throws scripture at him, but distorts it. And Jesus uses scripture properly and resists the devil. And then what happens? The devil left him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. How beautiful is that? Think again of the prodigal. The prodigal finally comes to that place of, of knowing he'd made a wreck of his, of his life and he finally humbly starts to approach his father's house and his father, what, sees him in the distance in this parable and comes running and Jesus tells this story for us to have an idea of what it is to have a God who draws near to us because we draw near to him. Runs out and meets his son. We have a heavenly father who longs for us to come near. Isn't that great? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's this idea of, okay, now that you have come to this point, now it's change your ways. Don't be that way anymore. Don't go back to that other way. There needs to be a refresh here. Then he gets intense. Be wretched, mourn, weep, laughter to gloom. I'm going to come back to this in just a minute. Keep going. Humble yourselves, he said. Again, pride is a, is a perpetual theme through this of these people. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Stop the slander and stop judging your neighbor. But he says, be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter and your joy be turned to gloom. People, this does not mean that we are to walk around as Christians as sad and depressed people with our heads down. It's not what it, it's, it's not what it means. 
We're not to be in a continual position of sorrow. Matthew 5, verse 4, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's a caution here because there could be some that say that's the way Christians should be. We should be just stone serious all the time. We should be just super depressed, uh, super aware of how sinful we are. And yes, there's an element of that. But context is critical here. It is, a, it is upon the return from sin. Our responses to, to uh, this, this spirit of repentance require an awareness of how egregious our sin is in the eyes of a holy God. For us to really understand repentance, we have to understand how gross and filthy we are in his eyes. And that, that is an action that's very serious. And James is saying, come to God in humility. Come to him in brokenness. And by the truth that, that our, our sins have sent Christ to the cross. You can't do that in laughter. You can't, can't do that without just feeling the pain of it. In a few minutes, we're going to have communion together. And, and part of that is just that acknowledgement of our sin and our brokenness. And our hearts should be broken by the fact that we're so prone toward adulterous ways in our spiritual lives. But true repentance can then lead to joy. Part of communion is also that acknowledgement that victory is ours in Christ. That we don't stay in our broken and horrible condition. That in our repentance and in our coming to Christ, acknowledging his victory over the grave, we actually are receiving the righteousness of Christ. God gives more grace. And that is a reason for joy. May the words of James just encourage you to have sort of a DTR with God, defining the relationship. God, there have been some things in my life that have between, been between you and me. Or there's been some things in my life that I actually hold in higher value than I do my relationship with you. And may that reality bring you to mourning, to weeping, a brokenness, and come to him in humility. And then find the joy of redemption, freely given by a God who gives more grace.